0: 13-year-old boy was killed in an attack on a school while we were there. Of course, God is active in the midst of the refugee camp. But as long as they stay in the village and they identify with Christ, they're getting attacked. And so, you think about that. What would we do? What would we do?
1: Imagine, you can live in a cave or sleep on the wide open ground and stay a Christian, or you can come back to your comfortable home in your safe village all you have to do is deny christ and become a muslim what would you do this isn't a hypothetical question for our brothers and sisters in sudan it's real life and we'll hear how they respond this week on the voice of the martyrs radio network
0: jesus never promised his followers an easy path in fact he told his disciples that the world would hate them He sent them out as sheep among wolves. Jesus' words came true in the life of the apostles, and they're still coming true today in the lives of his followers around the world. Join host Todd Nettleton as we hear their inspiring stories and learn how we can help, right now on The Voice of the Martyrs Radio Network.
1: Welcome again to The Voice of the Martyrs Radio Network. Sudan is a nation that has a long history in the minds of our VOM donors. In fact, uh, one of the things that really brought VOM to the attention of many people here in the United States for the very first time uh, was the time back in the 1990s when a VOM team came under fire from a Sudanese government helicopter gunship uh, while they were there in Sudan, a situation that was then featured on the 700 Club and really raised the profile of our ministry. But a lot has changed in Sudan since then. The Civil War came to an end. The country was divided into two entirely separate nations, uh, with the independent country of South Sudan being formed, But the persecution of our brothers and sisters, especially in Sudan, what is the northern part of the country, and in the border regions of South Sudan, has not stopped. Dr. Jason Peters, a member of our International Ministries team, has just returned from Sudan, and he's going to share with us today some of the highlights from that trip and give us an update on some of the Christians that he met uh, and some of the ongoing attacks and persecution that's happening in Sudan. Dr. Jason Peters, welcome to VOM Radio.
0: Thanks, Todd. It's always great to be with you. Uh, let's
1: talk a little bit first about Sudan versus South Sudan. Just kind of give our listeners an update
0: of what the, the political or the government situation is in that part of the world. You know, a couple of years ago, back in July 9th of 2011, South Sudan became an independent country. Uh, and so the country of Sudan to the north is led by an oppressive Islamic regime with really an evil despot. Omar al-Bashir. And I don't say that lightly. He really is an evil leader who's trying to attack the Christians in the Nuba Mountain region. That region is properly uh, a part of Sudan, uh, of the north. Um, But of course, it's disputed like many of the regions we work in, and it's filled with Christians. What's the issue? Do they
1: want to control it? I, I know oil plays a big part in the politics of Sudan. Why do they continue to bomb this particular region?
0: What happened was uh, when South Sudan broke off, it was just a disputed area. Like many of the regions, I know you and I have worked in India. We have the same thing in Kashmir. You know, this disputed area does Pakistan on it, India, you know, there's... continual conflict this is a similar type of region and so in the nubas there's a perpetual conflict uh, the christians there have lived for years with this persistent pressure which i think uh, is difficult for our listeners to understand because you know we we're not used to when we see a plane overhead uh, being afraid because the only planes that are flying are the bad guys and that's what's happening in the nuba mountain region the only aircraft that are flying are bombers that are trying to kill the people, and to really displace them. You know, it's interesting, back in August of 2011, Samaritan's Purse became very involved with the refugee issue And, of course, one of our key project partners, the Persecution Project Foundation, led by Brad Phillips, has been active in all of this. Uh, They've been helping refugees who've fled south. And as they come across the border, you know, back in August, there were 2,000 refugees. Now there are approximately 80,000 refugees on that border. So uh, one particular camp that we visited, it, it used to be just a bare spot on the ground, and now it is housing thousands, tens of thousands of refugees. So it's just changed the entire demographic of that region. And so these people are fleeing North Sudan.
1: We'll call it North Sudan, just to clarify for our listeners. They're fleeing Sudan. They're coming to South Sudan because they don't want to live in the North. They don't want to live in the country that's controlled by the radical Islamist uh, Bashir, President Bashir of of Sudan. And, And, you know, they're setting up temporary shelters, like you say, it was just an open field. There's no infrastructure
0: for that. Right. Uh, there's
1: no sewer. There's no water. There's no nothing. So what are they doing? How, how are they surviving?
0: Primarily through humanitarian aid and assistance, uh, which is not a good long-term solution, but there, there's really no other apparent solution. Of course, God is active in the midst of the refugee camp. There are 20 pastors that we participate with supporting in that refugee camp who are literally pastors who used to be in the north. Now they come south with the refugees, and now they're doing ministry with their brothers and sisters who have also been displaced, which is the same thing that you and I have seen in Iraq, for example. It's a beautiful thing when the pastor is displaced with the people. In fact, let me tell you a story about that. One of the pastors I talked with, he was there. He said, I asked him, we were on the mountaintop looking down over a valley, and I asked him where he was from, and he said, well, you see that little spot over there? Our church was down there. It was bombed, and so uh, we moved to the mountains. And he said that when the people moved, I moved with them. And so I, I just wanted to explore that a bit further. So I said, so what you're saying is when your church was bombed, uh, your people moved to the mountain and you moved with them. And he looked at me as if I was an idiot. And he said, of course I did. The church is not the building. It's the church is the people. And so when the people go, I go like, what's wrong with you? You know, you don't get this? Anyway, it was really funny. But the point is that when the people move, uh, these pastors are in the midst of them also displaced, also living in caves, but continuing the ministry.
1: It's an interesting to me, it reminds me of sort of the incarnational ministry that you become a refugee to reach refugees. You become uh, what they are, and in many cases, they, they're they not necessarily intentionally becoming refugees. They are refugees, Yes. Uh, but instead of choosing to focus on being a refugee, they're focusing on, hey, this is an opportunity for ministry. This is my mission field. This is my congregation, uh, so I'm going to continue doing work for the Lord, Uh, as you went and as you were there, what was kind of the purpose or or the objectives of your particular trip or the team that you were on?
0: Well, one of the most exciting things about being involved with Persecution Project Foundation and the Voice of the Martyrs is that we are providing medication for the hospitals that are left in the area. Uh, Several humanitarian groups have left the region. They were bombed. We visited two hospitals that were specifically targeted, and I mean, we heard stories of patients being uh, shuffled out into foxholes in the courtyard of the hospital during these bombing attacks. And uh, so, a couple of the humanitarian organizations that, with names that many of us would recognize have left. They said, We just can't sustain these operations. Uh, what we've been able to do, the Voice of the Martyrs has been able to bring in 22 tons of medication this year to the New wow. Mountains. So, one of the, it was interesting, we met with a, a very prominent doctor in the area. He's actually the only American doctor who's stayed to serve people, even though he's dodging bombs frequently. Uh, And what he said was that he's been able to continue that ministry because of the aid that The Voice of the Martyrs is providing in terms of medication. It's very simple medication. Uh, It's not anything uh, profound. It's just oral rehydration tablets, malaria medication, things that that we sort of just take for granted. If we needed them, we could go to Walgreens or something and get them. Uh, They don't have that luxury, unfortunately you're listening to todd nettleton on the voice of the martyrs radio network
1: you're listening to voice of the martyrs radio and we're talking with dr jason peters who's a part of our international staff has just returned from the nation of sudan Uh, i want to go back to something you said because you mentioned that the hospitals were specifically targeted You know, there's a lot of people who would think a hospital is a safe place, but the government of Sudan obviously
0: is not allowing that to be true. Yeah, a hospital and a school and a church and a civilian home should be a safe place. And as Americans, this is difficult for us. You know that I was a former military officer. And so for me, we were taught that you target certain targets. They're lawful. There are laws of armed conflict. And then there are other targets that are out of bounds. We just don't even consider them options hospitals certainly fit in that category. But for the evil regime from Khartoum of Omar al-Bashir, he does not view it in the same way. He says, uh, I'm going to just indiscriminately bomb. In fact, if I see a group of children going into a school, that looks like a legitimate target to me. It's it's unbelievable. In fact, a 13-year-old boy was killed in an attack on a school while we were there. The same week we were there, we we actually participated in the funeral, went and, and were kind of cautious, didn't jump right into the funeral, of course, but observed it from afar. Uh, unbelievable, though, it was near a school and uh, a very targeted attack. And this 13-year-old boy was killed while trying to climb into a foxhole.
1: And I think it's interesting you mentioned foxholes in the courtyard of the hospital, foxholes right outside the school's. Uh, This is the reality for our brothers and sisters that live there. Uh, They always know where's the nearest foxhole. Uh, That's a part of their thought process. Everywhere they go, every building they go into, everything they do, okay, what happens if the bomb starts falling? You were only there for a few days, but how did that mentality creep into your own heart and your own mind of, okay, what do I do if?
0: Well, it's very interesting because we were there for seven days, and each of those nights we slept under the stars, just out in the open. But as I would prepare my sleeping bag for the night, I began to do exactly what you suggested. We looked around, and as people oriented us to our campsite, they would say, "Hey, there's a foxhole right over there, and there's another one over there." And so you you have that pressure even as you're going to bed. Uh, if something happens, if I'm suddenly awakened, where am I going to run? Where am I going to hide? And it actually reminds us, uh, we met with Christians who've moved into caves because of these attacks. And it reminds us of the scripture from Hebrews 13, which says that people uh, will be hiding in caves. They'll be digging holes in the ground. And we actually witnessed that firsthand with these Christians.
1: You had the experience of being there and and the planes are flying overhead. Uh, tell us, just tell us about that. Tell us about what happened and then tell us about sort of your thought process, because for, for us Americans, that's a very foreign
0: concept. It, it is. It actually took me back to when I was in Iraq as, as a military chaplain, and the type of uh, persistent pressure that you feel, you're always on edge, you're hyper aware, and you're just looking around. I remember driving uh, in Sudan one time. There's sort of this code of honor that if you're driving down the road, people know that you're in a vehicle and that you can't hear the drone of the aircraft and so uh there were two occasions when we're driving down the, the the dirt road and all of a sudden someone starts pointing into the sky saying there there's a plane overhead. there's a plane overhead you've got to take cover and so we would immediately pull over try to find a tree to park the vehicle under get away from the vehicle go hide to get as low as you can to the ground so it was it was just interesting to think uh what would it do to a child to grow up in that sort of conflict area. It's very disruptive. There was another time we were with a a few children, and uh, they were playing, just kind of goofing around with the Frisbee. We brought a Frisbee, and and kids love the Frisbee. And and then all of a sudden, a plane came overhead. They immediately ran into the foxholes. Nobody had to tell them what to do. They knew what to do, probably because they've seen some of their friends injured by these attacks.
1: It's one thing to live with that for seven days. (laughs) But if that's your whole existence, is that state of hyper awareness of, is that an airplane? Okay. Where's the foxhole? How does that affect? And I know you have some training from your military background in trauma recovery and helping people work through some of this. How does that affect a nine, 10, 11, 12 year old kid who that's their whole life? Is that hyper awareness?
0: Yeah. It's difficult to even measure what that does to a person. Because we're seeing this in other conflict zones where, for a decade now, there have been conflicts happening. What does that do to a child? I really don't know, to be honest with you. It's hard to measure that. But I would say this that in the midst of it, the Christians there are living out forgiveness. And I want to tell you a story about a guy named Pastor Morris. Pastor Morris has a ministry that he just felt the Lord leading him to begin recently to serve prisoners of war. And so, when these Sudanese soldiers are captured, by those in the Nuba Mountains, the, uh, the rebel army, if you, as it were. They grab the soldiers. Of course, they're going to take their boots and their clothes because they need boots and they need clothes. In fact, the only weapons that the rebels have are those that they've captured from the army that's attacking them. And so as they, they take these, uh, these clothes and boots, they put these people into a prisoner of war camp. And this pastor in the area, he said, wow, there are some real needs there. We could really minister to these prisoners of war. And so one day he actually collected a bunch of shoes and he was going to take them to the prisoner of war camp. And his son stopped him, his young son, and said, Father, what are you doing with the shoes? He said, I'm taking them to give them to the prisoners. And his son said, and this was interesting, Pastor Morris said, just the night before they had been bombed. And the son said, but Father, aren't those the same men who are bombing us? And he said, yes, son, they are. But Jesus wants us to love them and to forgive them. And as he taught his son, it was interesting. He said that after my son began to understand this, he didn't ask any more questions, but he's watching his father take these gifts to bless these prisoners of war in Jesus' name.
1: You know, Jesus calls on us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Uh, this is a very practical way that one of our Sudanese brothers is is doing exactly that. He's answering that call. Uh, you talk about the effect that that's having on his son, and I want to—I know you took one of your sons on this trip with you, one of your teenage sons.
0: You're taking your son into a war zone. <laughs> did Did you think twice about that? Well, uh, to be honest with you, I'm not sure uh, that I understood exactly how intense it would be <laughs> until we arrived <laughs> and began to get briefings. Twenty twenty hindsight. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. No, there there was one occasion where I I literally had to ask my son to to stay behind in a safer area because there there was a foxhole that had been uh, targeted and th- these. This foxhole was targeted by missile attacks coming from a nearby town. And so it was persistent. Every day these missile attacks were coming in. And this foxhole, had, uh, it was so dangerous that the children were sleeping in the foxhole. They didn't even sleep in their, their wow. little uh, straw hut. They were sleeping in the foxhole. And unfortunately, they were hit nearby. Their foxhole was hit, and so they suffered severe burns. Nine boys were in this foxhole. Six of them ended up dying. And so we had the opportunity to go see that place and to encourage those around in that area. And so I asked my son on that day, uh, I said, why don't you stay here? I'm gonna go do this. And, and I'll be honest with you, the thought crossed my mind. Um, challenging to me as a father, how how willing am I to uh, to stand for what's right and to be a voice for those who are suffering, uh, even when it puts me, and, and I'm used to that for myself, but when it puts my family at risk, that's an entirely different level. It's a different question. Yeah, and I think for our brothers and sisters who are living in these places, uh, this town is a great example because I heard that if a Christian in this rural area around this town, which is occupied by the north, That if they walked into that town and they said, I'm willing to become a Muslim, and they went through the steps required to convert to Islam, they would be fine. Everything's okay. They would be welcomed with open arms. of course. But as long as they stay in the village and they identify with Christ, they're getting attacked. And so you think about that. What would we do in those situations? It's very challenging to our own faith.
1: You're listening to Todd Nettleton on the Voice of the Martyrs Radio Network. You can listen to every episode of VOM Radio at www.vomradio.net. What were the lessons that your son came home with? Because I'm sure this was an amazing, eye-opening
0: experience for him. Yeah, it's just a big dose of perspective, which I think is the gift that that we each have as we travel and we meet with these brothers and sisters. And hopefully we can bring it back to our listeners and our readers, this idea that, um, you know, when you think you've had a bad day, Uh, It's really probably not as bad as a Christian around the world is facing because of their faith. And what kind of inspiration can that be for us? He came back and said, my faith was deepened because I saw that these people had nothing, but they had Jesus, and that was enough. And that's the message I think we could all be reminded of.
1: That is a great lesson, and uh, I echo what uh, Dr. Jason Peters just said perspective comes with uh, airplane tickets and, and getting over and seeing how other people live what a great experience for him you had some experience uh, you talked about the people living in caves and you mentioned the the book of Hebrews and it talks about you know living in caves living in holes in the ground you saw that firsthand both of those things um, what did that do for your perspective
0: well it was interesting one night we went and we hiked for three hours to the top of a, of a mountain in the Nuba mountain region to meet with Christians who had been displaced. And as I sat there in the cave and talked with these Christians, they have everything they own is, is right there in the cave. And again, the focus that they have is not on earthly possessions. They're not worried about their house. You know, last night I, I went home and I had to mow my lawn. You know, this is the kind of thing that we, we have to think about. And First they're not world cons- problems. Right, exactly. You know, I'm, I'm complaining because I got to go mow the lawn. But, but what they're doing is they're saying, uh, yes, it's been difficult, But thank you for coming and reminding us that people are praying for us. That's the biggest message that we can share is we're praying for you. And you know what's interesting, and I know you've you've experienced this personally yourself, is that they will say, we are praying for you. (laughs) It's a mutual fellowship. It's the fellowship of the universal body of Christ. We're praying for each other. We're trying to stand with each other. Uh, But to live in this cave, the perspective that I had, one example, which was very striking, was the lack of water. Uh, We turn on the faucet every day, water comes out. If it doesn't happen, we call the plumber, and by the end of the day, it's back on. Uh, In this case, the water, the only water source that they have, the only natural water source, is in a cave. And it takes quite a bit of effort to walk to this cave. In fact, it takes so much effort that the adults don't do it themselves. It's, it's actually very difficult for an adult to crawl into this cave and to reach the water source. I, I did crawl in there just to experience it, but I had to get on my stomach and literally you know scoot along the gravel wow. to this water source. And to try to, to scoop it out one cup at a time, to put it into a bucket. And then the children who get this water, they work in teams. And so one of them will carry the bucket on their head about halfway down the the mountain. And then another one will pick it up and carry it the rest of the way. And then some older ones who are not uh, as able to climb these difficult climbs and to crawl into these tiny places, they'll take it further down. And that is the water source. So actually what's confusing for us to to even begin to understand is that it is a huge effort just to get water. So perhaps uh, two or three hours a day of your life is just getting the water that you need to survive that day. It's it's just entirely different than anything we can wrap our heads around.
1: You mentioned the, the message of prayer. And one of the things we always want to do on VM Radio is encourage people to pray. Uh, you know, we talked about that sense of hyper-awareness and how that affects the kids there. Uh, that that's a great prayer request, not only for Sudan. I think of Syria. I think of Iraq. I think of so many other places where kids are in that hyper awareness all the time. But but what are some other ways we can pray specifically for Sudan
0: and especially the Nuba Mountains, the part where you are? Well, we pray for an end to the conflict. I pray that the evil regime of the North would be stopped. And I don't know how God wants to do that. I don't know what his plan is, other than that uh, we know that his people are suffering in that area because they're following Jesus. You know, scripture talks about different types of suffering. Sometimes we suffer because of our own doing. Uh, other times we suffer because we're following Jesus, and this is that type of suffering. They're enduring it every day, and I pray for the violence to cease. I also pray for peace. I pray that God would give them a special a sense of his presence and his peace, and I think that we saw that. Uh, there's a purity that comes to our faith when everything else is stripped away. Do you remember when Richard Wormbrand talked about this when he was in solitary confinement? There was a beautiful place, a connection with God that he had that he just didn't experience when he was outside of prison. In a similar way, I think these Sudanese believers are experiencing that sort of connection and communion with God. You know, maybe when they're taking that two-hour march up the mountain to get the water, maybe they're praying that entire way. You know, maybe they're listening to one of the audio Bibles we gave them. We gave them some solar-powered audio Bibles, and it's exciting to me to think that right now someone may be listening to God's Word while they're doing their chores, uh, just trying to survive um, that's a powerful um, opportunity for communion with God. So I pray for more of that. I pray that uh, one day when we get together in heaven, we can sit around and and just celebrate the way that God worked, even in these very difficult situations.
1: And I want our listeners to know, we're, we're speaking with Dr. Jason Peters, one of our international team who uh, was just in the country of Sudan. Uh, Dr. Jason, you you use the word evil regime to talk about the north and I don't want our listeners to think you're just involved in name calling there. This is uh, a regime that is led by Omar al-Bashir, uh, an indicted person, indicted criminal yes. by the World Criminal Court, someone who is wanted. <laughs> uh, yeah. So so we're not just name-calling. This is something that is, uh, the evidence is there, the proof is there. Uh, talk a little bit about that.
0: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think most people would be surprised to learn that al-Bashir is the first sitting head of state. It's indicted by the International Criminal Court for genocide. So here you have, uh, imagine if, if our president was indicted for genocide and he was able to just continue business as usual. It, it's really mind-blowing, but for whatever reason, he's able to sit and to continue this genocide. You know, journalists in the area recorded 1,500 distinct bombings in January and February of 2015. So two months, 1,500 distinct bombings. It's unbelievable. And the the purpose is simply to cause misery for the people of the Nuba Mountains? I think it's to displace them. I think that they're very happy about the reality. The North is happy that so many have fled to the South they they still have massive conflict with South Sudan. So, of course, they would love South Sudan to be overrun by refugees and for more and more people to be displaced. There are not natural resources in the Nuba Mountains that they want access to, as far as we know. It's just simply an attempt to genocide. They don't like the tribes. They don't like their Christian faith. They just want them out of the area.
1: You know, it's interesting that you say that. My first trip for VOM back in 1998 was to Sudan, uh, and I'll never forget one of the, the leaders of the SPLA that we met, he made this statement. He said, uh, the North wants the land, but not the people. Uh, and it seems like that's true for the Nuba Mountains today. It was true for South Sudan at that point in time. Uh, these are African tribal people as opposed to the people of most of the people of northern Sudan, which are Arab speaking, Arab Middle Eastern people. Um, So there is that ethnic conflict. There is certainly that sort of national conflict of this border and disputed lands. How do we we tell the difference between what is that political conflict or, or tribal conflict or ethnic conflict and what is persecution of our brothers and sisters because they are Christians?
0: That's a good question, and that's what we struggle with sometimes in the International Ministries Department, to to really find the believers, and that's who we're standing shoulder to shoulder with, the believers in the Nuba Mountain region who are strongly identifying with their faith. They're not Christian by, by name only. You know, they, they weren't born into a Christian tribe and thus they're Christian. These are believers that, that we met with, that we were engaging with, who are actively following Jesus and they're being persecuted because of it. Sometimes by others in their own area, sometimes by others outside of their area, but the point is that they're following Jesus very clearly, and that's who we want to stand with. That's what we do with our frontline workers ministry here at the Voice of the Martyrs. We say, hey, we know there are a lot of Christians who are suffering, but there is a special category of people who are suffering because they are frontline workers. They're engaging on the front lines of the battle for Jesus, and we want to stand with them and encourage them.
1: Dr. Jason Peters, thank you very much for sharing your experiences with us. Thank you for helping us to understand more about what's happening in Sudan uh, and to pray effectively for our brothers and sisters in that part of the world.
0: Yeah, like I said, it's always great to be with you, and it's such an honor to be a voice for these dear Christian brothers and sisters who really do not have a voice. Amen. Thank you, Dr.
1: Jason Peters, for being our guest this week and sharing about your trip to Sudan, and thank you for being with us. Connect with us online at vomradio.net to listen to more episodes of VOM Radio, access the show as a podcast, as well as send us a question or a comment. That's vomradio.net. Please pray for Sudan this week and for Muslims all over the world to come to know Jesus Christ in a personal way. We'll see you next week here on the Voice of the Martyrs Radio Network.